It's almost like I'm studying all of these things that I didn't do, you know, uh, growing up, right? Not being taught about color, not ever thinking about color theory because I didn't identify as an artist. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 83rd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find all this and more at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon where generous, lovely, and extremely good-looking print fans sign up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month. And recently, we've added a new feature to our Pine Copper Lime community, Shop Talk, with Timothy Pauschak, our editor. These are brief, short, all-business, quick and dirty tips and tricks of the trade from our guests. We'll answer questions like, where do you get your inspiration? What's the best way to solve mistakes? What's the best way to learn from them? What's the best thing to text your crush? This is technical printmaking nerd content at its finest. Check it out through the link in the show notes. And if you want to show your love of printmaking to the world, we do have Pine Copper Lime merch with all kinds of fun designs to sow your PCL love and make print jokes to confuse and intrigue your friends and family. Check out the link in the show notes and send us a picture of you out in the world with some of your PCL swag. We'd really love it. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. If you've been following them along on Instagram, and we really recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with artists like Andy McDougall and Lil Tuffy, they have created a brand new line of custom inks and additives to put your practice even further. So head on over to the Speedball's Print Posse shop at speedballart.com, where you can find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. Link in the show notes, as always. Oh, print friends. Oh, my dear, dear print friends. There are some big changes happening at Pine Copper Lime these days. Our friend and co-host, Ronaldo Gilzambrano, has been hard at work interviewing the best and brightest printmakers in the Spanish-speaking world. He has, in fact, created so many episodes that we have started a second feed on Pine Copper Lime just for them. So, if you're a Spanish-speaking print friend, you know a Spanish-speaking print friend, or you are an aspiring Spanish-speaking print friend, check out the link in the show notes and make sure to subscribe there. And don't worry, we're still going to be bringing you our bi-monthly bilingual episodes right here, but if you're looking for print content El Español, check out that link. And if you head over right now, we actually have a brand new Spanish episode lined up for you as well as the complete catalog of back interviews with our Spanish-speaking print friends. I'm so excited. My guest this week is Alexis Nutini, a Philadelphia-based relief printmaker. We'll talk about his early experiences growing up in a family of cultural anthropologists, the switch from large-scale black-and-white figurative woodcuts to much more intense multicolor abstract work, 
using technology to experiment with printmaking and his expandive collaborative practice at a time when most of us are separated. This is an also episode we did in collaboration with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano to do a double release in English and Spanish. So if you're a Spanish-speaking print friend, please do not hesitate to check out the other link in the feed this week, which is our guest conversation with Ronaldo in Spanish. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to find some inspiration in that old junk drawer with Alexis Nutini. Hi, Alexis. How's it going? Good. How are you? Happy I, to be here. I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining me and for being willing to do a back-to-back double interview and being one of our bi-monthly bilingual Pine Copper Lime guests. I became familiar with your work truly just through Instagram. I, I don't even know if Instagram suggested you to me or if someone sent you to me, but the work that you're doing is just stunning and eye-catching and quite unusual. And I just instantly was like, what is this? I want to know more about it. And so that was maybe a year ago or more that I first saw it. So I'm really excited to have a chance to get my questions answered. But before we dive into talking about the work itself, would you please introduce yourself and tell our dear listeners who you are, where you are, and what you do? All right. Well, I'm Alexis Nutini, um, and I am a, I guess I would say I'm a relief specialist. Uh, primarily in woodcut, and I do reductive printing, hand carving, and I use a CNC, computer numerical control machine, to make my plates. And my print shop is in South Philadelphia. Excellent. But you're not from Philly, so tell us where you grew up and what role did art play in that part of your life? All right. Well, I, I, I've had a very sort of international upbringing. Uh-huh. I was born in Mexico City to scholarly parents. Uh, they were anthropologists. And I, um, I was born there and spent a little bit of time there, but I really grew up on the Gulf Coast in the state of Veracruz in a, in a little town uh, when, where my grandmother had made her home. And since they were anthropologists, I definitely was able to visit a lot of different places cultural centers, big cities, Mexico City, Puebla, as well as uh, little towns, which um, little villages, very rural, which is where they did a lot of their field research. So I was exposed to a big range of of things. Um, And there was art around our home or, you know, uh, arts, crafts, the same, you know, same thing to me. But a a big influence on on me was one of my father's uh, informants, who was a muralist, um, and he was a sort of later day muralist, sort of one of the last muralists mm. from the region that he did his research, which is Tlaxcala, which is in the central plateau of Mexico. So I don't know very much at all about anthropology. I'm just curious about the use of the word informant there, because it sounds so much like a like a crime drama or something. Is, is this... Well, what does that actually mean in that context? So, I mean, that's a good question. Um, so an, an informant, he's a cultural anthropologist, okay. right? Uh, 
historical anthropologists would study cranial structure and fossils, that kind of, you know, like human, the physical human uh, human body and, and remains, right? Whereas a cultural anthropologist studies human behavior. So uh, an informant, I mean, maybe there's another word. It's somebody that he interviewed from the local community that okay. he studied. And in doing so, he got to be, you know, you form these relationships and he formed this great relationship with this painter from this region. Gotcha. And that was, I think, yeah, that was like the biggest, I guess I suppose the biggest uh, influence as, as a young person was visiting this artist's studio while my father did his research and, you know, playing around in that house. And so, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so the relationship with the painter was sort of through your father's work and, you know, studying human behavior, but it sounds like you actually got to have a personal relationship with the painter as well and him to influence maybe or broaden your perspective as a little kid about art and, and what it was, hey? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I just saw it. It was colorful. It was didactic, like a lot of the Mexican muralists. Mm -hmm are um were and so i think it was just around it was like here are these colorful colorful imagery and images of uh, of the um indigenous folk doing uh representations of indigenous folk doing their things in that region and that was some of the stuff my father studied mm. um but you know i it, the the stuff that i was taught about were pre-hispanic stuff right we go to the archaeological museum to see these massive carvings of uh, stone carvings and i it really they didn't really they had art because they were friends with this artist that's the main person they collected but it wasn't like i had an art education through that it was really was more social anthropology uh, and an awareness of the culture in that region. Gotcha. So how did that kind of evolve into you being an artist yourself then? I mean, that that's a good question, a, a funny question, uh -huh. really. Because, <laughs> I mean, because my... Um, you know, when when um, my father... My father um, moved from Chile to the U.S., and kind of left his family there. And because he was fluent in Spanish, and once he got involved in anthropology, the, the closest thing was Mexico. It made sense, right? And um, so being the son of academics, I had to go to college, right? And I didn't really have a direction. I pretty much just lived for going back summers to Mexico. Mm -hmm. That was my father was like you do do great in school and you're going to mexico to see all your friends that we sort of you know took you away from in a way not really because we went back every summer but that that was it that's what i lived for i just going back in the freedom and the small town and just the richness of the life there and so when i went to school i mean i didn't even know there was an art major i just doodled i sort of pseudo graffiti stuff in a sketchbook just because I, you know, I lived in, in Pittsburgh where my, that was my University of Pittsburgh was my father's uh, academic affiliation. And so I just I kind of like doodled, but I did not identify as an artist. That wasn't. And then someone in college, a friend in college and making my way in this liberal arts school. So doing philosophy, anthropology classes, just the basic requirements of that. Someone was like, you know, you have all this background. I see you have these art books. They're my my parents and I all these all these anthropology books like, why don't you take an art class? 
And sure enough, there was this explosion. Mm -hmm. And I I was like, oh, you can get, I can get my degree in this? Cool. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) Still, I arrived at it as being kind of lost, right? Not lost, you know, just you know, I, I, that, that's just kind of how I came about it. I definitely did not have a portfolio uh, and have anything. I was just kind of, you can get an art major. Cool. <laughs> I'm into that. That's so funny. It, it actually kind of reminds me of my own experience with school. And I come from two librarian parents. So, you know, pretty academic. You know, they've got master's degrees. They both worked at universities as, um, or colleges as as uh, as librarians and so it was just always you're going to college like it, there was never really sort of other options discussed growing up and it wasn't nec- like a really god damn it you're going to college and like it never had that kind of like intensity about it it just was that was the path that was presented to me that was this is what one does with their life yeah so you're 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 in college someone is kind enough to let you know that you can actually major in art making. And then where does printmaking come into the story? So um, one of the one of the few things that I did do, um, you know, that I, as, as a maker was sort of just doodles in the notebook and sort of like pseudo graffiti. I was never really like out there. You know, I appreciated it because I lived in cities and I liked exploring them. So I did have sort of some pseudo graffiti and doodles and it was very, very graphic and sharpies. So my um, my teacher asked if I had if I had ever made a woodcut, if I had ever made a relief print. And it was something that we were it was sort of um, since it wasn't a full on art school. Um, you know, you took like a materials and techniques class, right? It wasn't just straight up printmaking. Right. And and one of the options for the project was make a monotype or make a, make a um, Xerox transfer or make a woodcut. And then I, I looked and I was like, I've seen all this stuff. I've seen all the Posada skulls and all of that amazing, amazing stuff. I, I, I know this. I know this stuff. And I just jumped in and they lent me some gougers and some plywood. And, and that's it. Just I, I couldn't get enough of the carving experience, just that therapeutic digging out and then just, you know, making that impression that that thing that I think draws a lot of people, the immediacy of that woodcut, right? The low tech element and, and the quick way of repeating it and painting it different colors at the time. I mean, and of course we had presses, but I was like, I don't need this. I just made giant woodcuts because I was having fun with that came much later. And that was it. They just suggested, hey, try it. it was kind of the same way in taking an art class. All of a sudden, all this stuff that had been dormant just was, you know, exploding, coming out and just getting, I just got really excited about it. That, that was it. That was it. I love what you're talking about with the way you say the therapeutics of carving. I just think that so many printmakers will hear that and really respond to it because it is meditative for a lot of people. I think it really is calming for a lot of people. And I've even had some relief printmakers say, oh, I don't even like, I'm not even in it for the drawing. I'm in it for the carving. That like the, the least favorite part is the design and then actually getting to sit down and watch the image appear is actually like their favorite part of it. Yeah. And then, so, you know, relief, it sounds like it's kind of where you started, but you actually, 
use a lot of different techniques to create the images that you use. You know, you um, you mentioned something about CNC, which I don't even know what that is. And then, but you also like stencil, you use collage. Can you talk maybe a bit about your current practice and everything that goes into it to create these really deep, rich images that you have now? So, okay, so there's a, there's a lot there, right? Um, I mean, for 10 years, I just made monochrome monumental prints. Mm. And, then, and then I got a press that allowed me to really, all those were hand printed, right? And then, so I finally found a way to uh, save up some money and do a little fundraising thing. Here, give me some money. I'll make a print after I get the thing <laughs> kind of deal. And I got a press and that's what really allowed me to start doing that layering of color, right? That like rich layering and I and I and I'm a technician but I just love to over ink the plates you know I want that like glossiness I think it's you know I love and, and I think everybody that's been around printmaking a long time always talks about that moment when you pull up the piece of paper right and you're like ah that was not what I was expecting or you get that 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 exhilarating moment where I'm like that's what I was expecting it's even better you know, and so I started developing developing that. It was getting the press that really brought out all of this color, all of this stuff that I hadn't been doing before because it was hard to do by hand, yeah. you know, and I, the messiness I liked. Again, it's that low-tech woodcut thing where you can just grab something. You don't even have to have a carved ink on it, run it, you know, run it through the press, squish it through again, you know. Um, so it was, I bought that press and that's when I started doing that, right? And it was just color and, and I was just able to do all that. S essentially research through making the prints what, um, what I couldn't really do before, right? And so now, now I still do all that. I still like that one-of-a-kind impression. I still, you know, I want to have a new experience. I want to try a new mm -hmm. color combination. It's almost like I'm studying all of these things that I didn't do, you know, uh, growing up, right? Not being taught about color, not ever thinking about color theory because I didn't identify as an artist and, you know, all of that stuff that I didn't do. And now with the press, I was able to combine all of that, the painterliness of a monotype, the mixing different blocks, you know, just having a whole, uh, you know, all these series. Um, and so a few years ago, um, so I'm developing all that, right? That one of a kind, rich, inky, inky print. Sometimes they have up to 20 layers and yeah. like they, they can't be archival anymore. There's so much oil base ink. <laughs> they're just, you know, and I think, and that's okay. Um, they're, they're archival enough. Um, and, and so a few years ago, I, I was working with a Latinx group um, that invited me to do a project. And we got this grant and I wanted everybody to have this. Um, I wanted to have this printmaking experience with me, right, of like mixing 10 different plates and color. And I wanted to in involve everybody in the group and involve people that weren't even near me, you know, digitally. And so with the grant money, I bought a CNC router, so it's this machine that you, you program through a computer, you create an image, and then the machine carves the plate itself. Mm -hmm. So I gathered this group of artists from Mexico, uh, West Coast, and a lot of the uh, community in South Philly, and I had everybody give me drawings, photos, and I carved them out, and I made this system 
where um, where everybody could collaborate on prints and make their own one of a kind prints, and it served as a as a way of doing workshops, teaching people um, about about printmaking. Um, and the institution that supports this is a nonprofit that does a lot of outreach. It's called a Fleischer Art Memorial. They've been around Philly for over a hundred years, um, uh, giving access to folks that may not have that opportunity so they did do free art classes so part of the grant was to do that so in this pretty package i collaborated with 20 30 artists from all over i did the project i bought myself this other tool and i taught a large group of people about relief print and mono prints and just the whole process and and essentially that just led to what i do now and what i really see what the significance of my of my practices beyond the formal beyond my ideas is this collaborative element and now it's just a tool to serve as a master printer um collaborate to make a living and instead of and i still hand carve i still do reductions i still do all of that but now it's this tool if i want to do a color theory print i can just run those plates i can be printing on my press in the booth there's the machine making all the there's a i have a booth where the machine is doing its thing and i can multitask and yeah i mean right now i'm working through this machine i'm working with artists um remotely so that and that that's there's a lot there right i mean we could talk about the color in my work the multiple plate the but i think that communal shared aspect that activism inherent to printmaking um, it is sort of real. I'm, I'm sort of finally coming to the content of my work. And I think it's that it's mm. working with teaching. And again, instead of spending three weeks carving a plate, I can have that, that idea ready in two days. And now I have a library of hundreds soon to be thousands of plates that I can combine. And that's why you're seeing this explosion of, of all of these, uh, all, all of these prints and techniques is because I have a library of plates. They're all, three quarter inch it's like sort of my type high version mm-hmm. and everything just works i don't have to change this pressure on my press and i just you know i can pull out a print from six years ago print on it with a plate i made yesterday so yeah as you say there's there's a ton in there but i I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about the collaborative printmaking experience and particularly it sounds like you're finding in our time of social distancing that you're able to do long distance collaborations. Um, can you speak to that, please? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, right? It's just a digital file that can be sent to me. So it could be a Sharpie drawing, I can interpret a Sharpie drawing, I can interpret a half done photo, or I can just interpret you know, a more minimal graphic. Right. So really all I have to do is get that image from somebody all over the world and make it in my shop all in one and then do a demo on a video call right and so i um and it, and it's just starting to happen right it's like i haven't been that good about updating my website and really putting this out there um as something to do simply because i don't have the time but i do work i do well i do collaborate and have a partnership with a, another awesome printmaking institution here in philly it's called brandywine workshop and archives um and they've been producing prints and um giving uh and and they're a diversity driven institution that really is giving a platform to um 
to artists of color, really just and of diverse backgrounds, an opportunity to make a print. So they have this visiting artist um, program where they select six or eight artists and then they pair them up with me or some of the other uh, master printers. I mean, I, I say that, you know, in quotes, I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I would never refer to myself as that. I say I like to serve as a master printer because uh -huh. <laughs> it sounds a little weird, you know, it's just like, but they pair me up with these artists and then we work out a, a deal and a lot of this um this institution brandywine um gets you know uh, grants from the nea and from all over and they pair me with local and at-large artists um to produce an edition you know and then the institution gets half of the prints mm -hmm. the artist gets the other half of the prints and then i get a few for collaborating and so, and on, and on top of doing community outreach and stuff too. So I do a lot of, you know, little workshops where, uh, where either kids or anybody involved at the other nonprofits just submit an image and, and I carve it for them. I even do it for my students. Um, they're a mile away at the school I teach at, but I'm making some relief plates for them to just get them going since, you know, just because I can and I can teach them, you know, what I think is going to be the future. I mean, they may not be artists but they might learn to use these machines for a job or for their creative practice so i don't know if that exactly answers the question but that's how i'm collaborating i'm printing editions with mm -hmm. with with another institution and also doing my own workshops not so much now and then also inviting other artists on my own to work with me yeah no for sure that that definitely answers it because it's I, and i really like the way it's kind of a diversity of, of approaching it as well. You know, it's not just like you going one-on-one -on -one to artists. It's not just kind of waiting for commissions to come in, but by being sounds like really active and looking at the different ways of going about this, it sounds like you've managed to keep quite busy even, even in the last year, which has been quite slow, I think for, for some artists or some artists who have collaboration at the heart of their making. Yeah. Yeah, too too busy because I'm I can't have people in here printing the projects, right? Mm. I can create it. I, you know, it's just hard. I think it's sort of. I think businesses go through it. Not that I mean, I have to operate on some level as a business, but it's just hard to grow out of it. I can only work on so many projects at once while I print them myself. Totally. You know, there's a mix that I can do, and then once I open up and invest more, I might bring in and mentor other printers and then they can print them while I develop the projects. Definitely. So I'd like to circle back for a second and talk about your use of color because it's definitely one of the really standout head turning elements of your work. And it was also really interesting to hear that you'd worked completely monochromatic for 10 years at least, yeah. And then you get this press and, you know, you can see a bit of the archive of your work on your website. And when you talk about an explosion, I think that that is a great way to describe it because it's just these huge, I mean, there's works that are nine feet long on your website from that archive of when you were doing these big monochromatic black and whites. And then it's just this like movement and layers and richness how did that happen? It seems to it seems to be like you just flipped on a switch, but I'm sure there was more to it than that. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, I had been this like, oh, I, I'm making this 10 foot tall, like woodcut, like, you know, big, like sort of like almost like showy, you know, and it was like, it was about me and just like here, I can carve this huge thing, you know, and, and it was just like that. And I borrowed, I did a lot of, um, a lot of that stuff was sort of based on some of, I, I sort of called it a, a sort of visual ethnography ethnography is like what my folks did right they wrote about the um wrote about a lot of the a lot of things going on in central mexico and specifically where they did this research so i did this like visual thing right i would go and make uh make a carving of a of an ofrenda a day of the dead altar for a place that i visited or you know um i did that kind of stuff right sort of like recording but it was just you know i kind of got tired of it i think it was just more about the carving and traveling than really putting something out there and i got this press and i think i think all that stuff we were talking about earlier the museums the the villages the cities the the muralists this the this artist's studio was full of color all those muralists mexican muralists use that color really effectively right in a didactic way so yeah. i think i was doing some of that i was sort of making woodcut murals of, about a lot of different things myself places i visited and then i think i got the press and it, and it just happened it was just something that it was there you know i would think about all the painted houses of the places that i traveled all the arts and crafts all of that i think the stuff was there you know and I, it's hard to say. I just all of a sudden realized how much I could study color, right? Like just simple color theory stuff, just changing the values, stuff that I was too lazy to do in college. All of a sudden I have, I have this press and I'm running it and I'm realizing, you know, transparent base to get that third, fourth color when I'm printing. I, I don't know if I have a clear answer to that. I guess the easy one would be just, sort of some of the stuff that uh, that I saw growing up has to had to be there you know and you know the markets that was that was always part of it you know um every time we went to a town or a city we always went to the craft market or to the mercado which is you know the market where they sell food and everything's just full of color you know yeah. um I often think of some of the stuff I'm doing. I mean, when you go to some of these markets, you go and you see there's just like a Chile store or, well, like a little shop. And there's like 40 different types of Chiles and it's like a monochrome range of red, right? And you're getting like 100 or 100, like 30 or 40 values of just this dark red Chiles, you know? And so that's the kind of stuff that now inspires me. And I think that that had to have been there. But I don't have a clear thing i just sort of fell in love with color and printing after having that press and it just it just developed you know and and i think part of it is i think there's nowhere else to go if i've been doing all this like monochrome mm -hmm. stuff and i'm about one of a kind prints it's like there's only so much i could do with grayscale or black and white mark making right mm -hmm. so then i I just I think it was just that natural process of always wanting a new experience when I pull a print. You know, does that make sense? It was yeah. like a just, you know, just and I mean, I remember one of my professors, I didn't they were great, but they would do these painting setups where they would have on the left, they would have like the cyan variations in the middle, their magenta variations and on the right, their uh, yellow variations. And I used to laugh at that. And I feel like that's what I'm doing now. Uh, like, I, yeah, so, you know, like I have the, 
I would be like, well, why would you do this? And it's like, you know, just interest, honing the skill, you know, mm-hmm. learning about it, experimenting. And of course, with me combined with just mixing it with graphics, creating more effect, creating just unexpected optical results. Mm-hmm. So it's growing. And then I can teach that, right? Like I can teach people about color that way too. People that, you know, sort of, so, you know, just, I mean, it's amazing when you do a printmaking demo with relief because it's so low tech and immediate that you pull it and then you pull three colors and then you get six, you know, with a little transparent base, you know, people love that, you know, it's like, oh, you could put a little piece of VHS tape in there and also mix it up. Awesome. You know, there's, I think, I think, I mean, all the printmaking methods have that, but relief is just so immediate. Here, bring a block here. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's something about relief. It's always the one that I use when I'm trying to get people to understand printmaking from complete scratch. You know, yep. like that people who are who are like, wait, what is this? What do you do? You know, that you, like when you can tell from the way that they're responding that they truly have never experienced any kind of image making through a transfer process. Like I, you know, I, I will often talk about woodblock or even if that's too complicated, just like stamping, just ask them like when you were a kid, did you ever use a stamp to (laughs) do something and just try and get them to that basic, basic idea. But I think that's one of the great things about relief, as you say, is it so low tech yet it's so, versatile it's so uh immediate and it can be so detailed or it can be graphic or it can be black and white or incredibly colorful and it's really or sloppy sloppy. totally (laughs) like you can yeah you can have um prints that have that intentional chatter left in them that are or prints where the registration is intentionally loose to get kind of more of a painterly effect it's really really interesting everything you can do just with the simplest of ideas with it yeah you mentioned something just in passing there which I actually did want to ask you about was doing monoprints with VHS tape as stencils and so Uh, you know, it creates these, uh, you know, this this really kind of like tangled sort of nest-like quality in the in the image. But how did you how did you come to this? Like, and and can you talk about maybe the the technique for people who I think once you see the image and once you read that it's with VHS tape, you can you can be like, oh wow, that is what that is. But yeah. Yeah, can, can you just well, talk guess, about that series a bit? Yeah, I guess I'll start just for the print printerly you know nerdy thing is you know print is the great mimic of the art forms right and you know you can do um the the funny thing is i i arrived at it through teaching you know i didn't want like when i started teaching doing uh you know academic and also workshops i don't want people i feel like i didn't I wanted to pass something along that I didn't do maybe or sort of move folks along. So I'd make them do monotypes and stencil prints with found objects. The first day I show them um, my drawer full of stuff and then say, you got to go to your junk drawer and your closet and bring in anything that you think might make a good transfer or might make a good stencil or a good offset. And, you know, in doing the assignment myself, right? I mean, teaching is uh, like being a student, a a perpetual student. 
And that's, you know, when I, when I went and did my homework assignment, that's what I found in, in an old drawer. And then, you know, I did, you know, we, I teach this, uh, I teach this really a sort of free form, uh, method of, of doing stencils. Then you print the ghost from that and then you flip the, the materials and then print the offset of those, a residual ink on there. But for the VHS, I did the VHS and I was like, that's really cool. And like you, it's got this like erratic movement cause you can't control it. And it's like spinning off the little reel you know, and falling. I'm like, oh, once it touches the ink, you can't really move it, you know, so there's this rigidity of it. But really what it is was just me doing one of my assignments and I just found something really good. And then after that, I started getting cassette tapes and audio tape to change the line weight. And and yeah, so essentially what it is, is after I say make a, a carved woodblock, I take a blank, you know, sort of like a, what would be called a monotype plate, a blank matrix. I ink it and then I just unroll the VHS tape, lay it down and print on top of it. Um, you know, so the VHS tape blocks the other ink and, and you know, mimics the, the VHS. And it's, I think what's interesting, you can see this in the quality of the prints that VHS tape really does have that unusual quality of being really flexible, but also completely opaque. So yep. the the way that it can can completely block the ink, but also be twisted into an infinite number of designs is just is just genius, I think, and and something that you would just never think of. But it has both those qualities. Yeah, and it's it right. It's like once you see that in the description, you can see that's like that fold, right? Or when it turns into a nest and it doesn't quite work and has a little curve curvature to it, or when it's like perfectly folded over like a piece of tape, right? It is. It's it, it is it is tape. It looks like tape. I'd also make sure that I want to get us a chance to talk about working non figuratively because printmaking, I think, is often associated with figurative art forms, um, narrative art forms. And you were, well, it's not that you, you know, like almost all of your, your monotypes that I've seen anyway, you know, they're, um, they're figurative, they have people in them. But as you've kind of transitioned into color theory, you've moved away from that a bit. And I guess, you know, because so many printmakers do work figuratively most of the artists I speak with are primarily figurative artists but but you're not you're you're in the in the business of communication without immediately recognizable forms and so maybe to kind of dive into this as an aspect of your art what was you know as as I said you know you you were working in this more narrative style and then again you've transitioned to the abstract world was that something that, you know, took a lot of almost sort of reteaching of yourself to start to create images that you found to be successful that were non-figurative? Did you, you take any of the techniques that you'd learned with you? What was that transition like for you as an artist? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure because <laughs> sometimes some of the stuff that you might be seeing, I might be collaborating with a sculptor like the big the big head that I've that I've uh, done recently, that's working with somebody else's image, but they've given me the permission to do the color, right? Um, other stuff I did. I mean, for 10, 12 years, I did record sort of you know what, what I was seeing, right? These, this narrative. <laughs> I mean, part of it is like 
coming up with something from within, right? Like I'm, I always marvel um, at folks that can just do illustration out of nowhere. And I think it's just my my way of of just putting it out there, right? I think it's paring down what it is. It's like I've got, I have these cans of ink and I have a spectrum of color and I, and I think that's enough. I don't know if I have like a good, good answer to that. I think it was just yeah. what I've been about. And it also allows me to collaborate. It's been a big part of it. It's like if I bring in um, a bunch of blocks with imagery, I, I find that people don't engage as much with it. You know, they're like, uh, well, I don't really like that figure. I don't I don't really associate myself with that stuff. Whereas if I just bring circles and some grids, um, folks really just jump in, you know, mm. at least that's been my experience. And I'm not saying that's what I do exclusively, but I think there's something to that. There's just something about just just creating a value out of nowhere and thinking of basic geometric shapes mm. or something and just implementing it and and you know and it's challenging right it's like a lot of folks that maybe don't have experience making stuff it's not always easy yeah. to make it sort of out of nothing quote unquote right and so I think it's part of my research and my my sort of investigation of, of color and just you know making this stuff I don't I don't know I'm not I um I just didn't always think about it it's yeah. just this happening you know, and, and now I just associate it with this. It, it's the spectrum, not just of the color, but just the spectrum of, of what I'm doing. It's just it can continue, you know, and I don't doubt that I'll come back to imagery and, and mixing it. You know, it's not as if I don't like it. It's just sort of what I'm doing now, as, as you know, as you know, for, for 12, 10, 12, 15 years, I did make images. And so I don't, I don't know if that was a concise answer, but I think it's sort of where I'm at, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's, I love it because it's, it's a really honest answer because I think that in art making, not every answer has a clean answer, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, it's, it's sometimes we do just sort of stumble into things and we're not entirely sure why something works, but we know it does. And that's part of the process too. Absolutely. No, no. Think about it. It's sort of in. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a late bloomer, but you know the, the history of when I got into doing it, sort of professionally or in school, and so it's it's just taken a while to to figure it out and figure out who I am. I'm definitely honest about it, and and I think there's a lot there. Sometimes folks are like, "Well, you're just doing this abstract, and you don't have this content." It's like I'm politically active. I'm I'm upset about all the things going on. Mm -hmm. I work broad range of of people i have a, a a very open experience of how i grew up and really multicultural so it's like i don't think i i, I um i think that's a question now too because there are a lot of a lot of movements i mean you bring it up i've listened to all the all the podcasts with the with a big range of, of folks you interview mm -hmm. and it's like it, it, this is valid you know it's like sometimes i don't have to have that reason you know it's like i'm still I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm an activist, but I, but I would work with folks that are, and uh, you know, I'm just doing this thing. You know, I, I guess it, it doesn't always have to be clear cut. Mm -hmm. I can do it in other ways and still geek out about the thing I love. You know, I can, <laughs> yeah. you know, I can still help others and make a difference, even if it isn't, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, pounding the streets or making these overtly. Uh, political images, you know, like the folks I work with, that tells you where my politics are. Mm, mm. Well, and I think that 
one of the things that people can miss sometimes is that the aesthetic can be political. You know, just just saying, I want to create an image that does something that's based more in the experience between the two people, the bonds that get formed, that that I don't have to make an image that is sort of quote-unquote doing something. That can be a political act in and of itself. That's like, you know, my... Uh, you know, you can say my my practice is based around connections between people and finding bonds and not looking at art as something that is functional, that I want art to be something that can exist for its own sake. You know, all of those are absolutely real statements you can make just through what you're doing. And I think that Art needs to be a big enough house where you can have people making imagery that in and of itself directly speaks to their politics, directly speaks to being a social critic um, and a political critic. And you also need work that is about enjoying human connection and building bonds between people because... That is where a lot of politics happens, too, and a lot of social change. You know, as we say, printmaking has a huge, long history of political activism, and part of that is just bringing people together in one place, getting people talking, getting people learning how to compromise and communicate. All of that is part of it as well. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It is. And I, yeah, and I think you hit on something when you talk about the shared experience. A lot of the, um, even though it's not overt and sometimes there's graphics, a lot of a common theme in, in across from the stuff I'm doing is this landscape. There is a horizon. Mm. All those lines, there is a line. The color is something we share, right? I mean, and but it, it's it's beautiful because we don't all see it the same way, right? But it's like we see, even if we don't see color, we see value changes. And we have this, we have that, that's a shared experience that I think we can tap into. And the same with the landscape, you know, it's like being, not being from anywhere. I mean, I guess I'm from Philly now, but mm -hmm. having jumped around a lot growing up, I think about that. It's like, you know, I don't care about borders. I don't care about this sort of like construct, right? It's like, I, I'm a little more fluid in that way. Um, and I think that's a landscape is always a, a part of it. Cause it's like, we share that, we share that horizon, we share that open space. And, and in abstraction, we share this similarity in how we read colors and how we read them culturally, but also just because we interpret them uh, differently, but we, you know, we all, we all are, are seeing this thing and, you know, making up our own mind of what we're looking at. Yeah. I also am curious about with your practice that you make unique prints with a medium that has the capacity for multiples. And, and I know you do additions as well, but a lot of your work is one of a kind. And I always appreciate when artists do that because I, I think it pushes back a little bit against this idea that printmaking is only there. The only reason you'd make a print is because you wanted multiples, which when artists are doing one of a kind, they're saying, no, 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 like this work can create an aesthetic in and of itself that has value, that has a way of making a mark on a page that you can't get any other way. And so I'm going to use it for that. But 
I'm wondering if you could just kind of speak to how making unique work became a part of your practice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that depending on where you look at it, you touch on something, right? It's like some some folks might be like, well, just see print as like the, you know, the the dog of the art world. Not anymore. But there is always that sort of, oh, well, it's just reproduction. It's more commercial. Obviously, we are fully aware of the political value and all of that. But for me, I think ultimately the, the, the one of a kind is also problematic because sometimes it's, it's also on paper and it's more ephemeral. Right. And, you know, maybe if you if you care about that, like some collectors appreciate that other others don't. Um, but for me, ultimately, I think it was just that the experience of, of doing it right like that vhs tape is going to move there is no printing what i do with that perfectly because that piece of paper sometimes yeah. is sit with of that vhs tape sometimes the paper is a half inch three inches floating before it gets squished through the press right so it's mm. i think you know I, I as i speak and and talk about it i think of it it's also the challenge of it for me, it's like, how can I make something good like this, but still, it, it, you know, still work on what I've been doing, right? It's like, I'm working, I've got this good, good composition going, I have these good colors going, let me throw something else in there. It is a challenge. It is for me, this, it's the constant exploration, that constant up and down of like, oh, that print was not so good. Wow, I can't wait to try that again tomorrow, but with a different color, you know? I like what you were saying there, because there's something about how if you really want to experiment in your practice, which it sounds like it's definitely a big part of what you do is just getting in and getting ink on paper and throwing things on the press and finding out what works. If you're not worried about, can I addition this? You really uh, take a lot of pressure off when it comes to experimentation. It opens up this whole whole world of things you can do if you're not thinking like okay but now can I do this 20 times and I can just come in and do one or two you know and it isn't this limiting thing definitely and I do editions obviously and I think the publisher I work with Brandywine I mean it puts them in a bind because instead of documenting one print they've just documented 40 variations of this other artist right so that's like money and time and archiving and and maybe their collectors don't want that because they're used to this one of a kind but it's like but see you're getting this unique thing you're getting this thing that was at that one special moment in the print shop with those two artists right and and that's the other thing that's why i like collaborative work because it feeds into the same stuff Right. It feeds into the same thing that I'm losing a little bit of control, just the way I lose a little control with printing a VHS tape or some stencil or over inking something or, you know, all the permutations of that. Yeah. And to hear a printmaker talk about wanting to lose some of that control in the creative process is so interesting because so much of what people look at printmaking and often will say this is what we love about it is they talk about the precision. They talk about the exactitude, like the registration, the details. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about it as almost reverse engineering that chance sort of back into what can be a very precise technical process. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, I mean, it is, it, it, it is, it is a thing, but I, um, you know, I just in, in, embrace it and believe me, I'm a technician, you know, it, I, I like to think about it as being balanced, right? It's like, how am I going to grow if I'm just 
you know, just this one thing, right? I mean, I, I like to have a balance. No one would ever accuse me of not being good at being a printer. Mm. But, you know, but it's, so it's great to hear you say that too, that it is sort of, you know, <laughs> in, in some ways it is contrary to that, right? Yeah, and that, that, that can be part of the process as well is, is finding that balance for yourself between knowing that you have the technical skills but choosing to release some of the control and the precision and let the print go where it needs to go. And it's true. And the other funny thing is like the CNC is meant to be, it's like this mechanical thing. And I was like, and you give, you get this digital image that's precise. And even the CNC, I don't run it perfectly. I allow it to make mistakes and things to chip away. And I've, and I've definitely met some of the folks that they pair me with. And, and sometimes I've definitely declined to work with artists that like point out the mistakes and are upset about certain things. I was like, I can't work with someone like thinks about it so so you know it's like i want to embrace the mistakes like the little misprint that's enhancing the print you know i think i think you know you're on to something when the mistakes are enhancing your work you know and that's um and that's a thing um you didn't you didn't ask but that's the whole thing um about dos tres press that just means dos tres is like a value judgment it's a reminder to me that dos tres is just like, eh, dos tres, sort of like, eh, on a value scale. Like, how is that print? Eh, dos tres, two, three, you know, sort of like, eh, it's a reminder to not be so, take myself so seriously, you know. It was this thing when I go back to Mexico and I, and there's this, you know, dude comes back from going to school and, you know, and like, look at these prints and all uh, the artists and they'd be like, eh, dos tres, so, so. You know, so that's sort of the origin of my press name. And so it's just a reminder of that. It's like, you know, there's a lot of other things in life, too. I am a serious printer creative, but, you know, I have a family and there's a lot of other things going on. Oh, I love oh. that. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about that, too, because, yeah, because I recognize the words as two and three as, as translated into English. But I had no idea that it's actually kind of a slang for like, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. the saying is dos tres no te dejes impresionar, which just means ah, two, three. Don't don't let yourself get too too amazed, too wowed by it. It's like eh, relax. <laughs> so it's always my friends kind of making fun of me, but it's good to be humble and it's good, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I I it reminds me of of watching a, a documentary once about sign painters and you know hand painted signs and they do incredible work and really understand the technique of sign painting and the right brushes and the right paints and how you get things. And they said that there is a phrase though in the sign painting community that's like IOAFS, which is, it's only a fucking sign. Like, so, (laughs) and I think that that's an important part of the creative process is you can get so pulled down into it and the technicalities and the academia of it and the discussion of it and the what are you going to do with your career of it and it's so important to have perspective as well and to remember to don't have to take it all so seriously yeah yeah Yeah. perspective that's a that's a good word to describe it and so that's just a reminder to myself uh of that Absolutely. Well, I think that that's a beautiful place to 
wrap things up as we've, we've reached our hour recording mark here. But can you let people know where they can find you, where they can maybe get in touch if they're interested in collaborating, where they can see your work, all of that? So the, the usual the usual places, um, Instagram is at dos underscore tres underscore press. And my website is alexisnutini.com. And I'm in the works of generating a Dos Tres Press website where you'll be able to get information about making CNC plates, collaborating, and sort of more the the shop collaborative aspect of uh, of my work. Okay. So thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, that was so fun to learn more about your work and to just talk to someone in Philly. I know my husband and I really love that city, and it's always nice to feel a little connected to it. And hot, sticky Bangkok right now. (laughs) Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Jessica Robles. We'll talk about community college, being an introvert, the insignificant moments, and of course, dogs. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pashak and music by Joshua Weber. We'll see you next week. I have no idea why I said dogs that way.